Greetings, friends. I'm John Haspel. This is a Dhamma talk from Cross River Meditation Center in Frenchtown, New Jersey. If you find benefit from this talk, please support the restoration, the preservation, and the presentation of the Buddha's Dhamma with your donation at becoming-buddha.com. Thank you. Peace. Let me just begin um, with rereading two paragraphs that I concluded um, Tuesday's class with. So, yeah, we're in the middle of the uh, four classes on the Anapanasati Sutta. Um, and this portion, and let me read this first. The, four, the Buddha's words, the four foundations of mindfulness, when appropriately developed, there's an appropriate and an inappropriate way to develop this type of mindfulness. That brings the seven factors to awakening to their culmination, the things that we need to develop um, as part of our um, uh, awakening personality. Um, they're not things to grasp after these seven factors. They're things to acknowledge that they develop. Um, the seven factors for awakening, again, when appropriately developed, brings clear knowing or right understanding or right view and release from clinging to views, ignorant of four noble truths, to their culmination. So this is how we know we're getting there, that, that these seven factors have been developed. And David's going to conclude this, but I'm going to touch on the, the foundation for that. David's going to conclude this series on Tuesday, uh, going in depth on that. Um, and this section is called mindfulness of in and out breathing. But what this is, is a direct teaching on how to meditate and what to do and what to notice um, that arises and passes away. So this is jhana practice, the Buddha's words. Now, how is mindfulness of in and out breathing, again, appropriately developed, so to be of great benefit? A Dhamma practitioner, having gone to the wilderness to the shade of a tree or to an empty hut. Man, might not be able to read today, folks. Let me see. <laughs> Impermanence and permanence. Um, a, a Dhamma practitioner, having gone to the wilderness, to the shade of a tree or to an empty hut, sits down, folding his legs crosswise, holding his body erect, and setting mindfulness to the fore. That, what that means is being mindful of our mindfulness. It's, it's on the forefront of our mind. We're going to use our mindfulness in a very specific way to deepen concentration. And the, the reference to folding their legs, um, uh, I find that to be the most comfortable way for me to sit. Um, for me to sit in a chair for any length of time gets pretty uncomfortable. But some people find sitting in a chair more comfortable than sitting on the floor. And so that's entirely appropriate. The most important thing about a meditation posture is that it's comfortable for you, but it's not so comfortable that you fall asleep, such as lying down. Is anybody lying down today? Okay. The Buddha continues, always mindful of the breath, they breathe in. Always mindful of the breath, they breathe out. That's Nama practice, that's jhana practice. Always mindful of the breath. What's the Buddha teaching here? When other things come in to our jhana practice, that is not the breath, that is not mindfulness of the breath, what do we do? We put our attention or our mindfulness back on the breath. Always mindful of the breath they breathe in, always mindful of the breath they breathe out. There's nothing um, else to do except to breathe in and breathe out. We don't exaggerate our breath in any way in this practice. When breathing in long, that Dhamma practitioner notices I'm breathing in long. When breathing out long, when it's a, a deep exhale, that Dhamma practitioner notices I'm breathing out long. The reason why the Buddha is teaching this and I'm teaching it is to put mindfulness on just the breath, however the breath is. So many people in modern Buddhism have taken this section of the Anapanasate Sutta and making this their Anapanasate practice, their mindfulness of the breath practice, exaggerating your breath instead of just noticing your breath, exaggerating a long breath, exaggerating a short breath, 
um, getting into um, contemplation of the charnel grounds is what it's called, what your body goes through when it dies, it starts decomposing. All of that is just a teaching uh, to be mindful of what's occurring. In this case, it's just simply mindfulness of our breath, however, if we find it. The Buddha continues, or when breathing in short, they notice I'm breathing in short, or when breathing out short, a rapid breath, they notice I'm breathing out short, period. Don't do anything else with it. A long breath is not better than a short breath or any other breath. It's just our breath. He trains himself. I will breathe in, sensitive to the entire body. He trains himself. I will breathe out, sensitive to the entire body. What does it mean? It means I'm not... I'm not doing a body scan. I'm not noticing where my aches and pains are or how strong or how weak or how tall or how short or how fat or how thin I am. We're simply sensitive to having a body. We are noticing that our mind is now in that moment when I'm mindful of my in-breath and my out-breath, I am in my entire body. And it may be for some of us, it might be for the first time in years that we've actually done this. And so it takes continued practice to be sensitive to the fact that I'm doing it. That's all that the Buddha is teaching. It. He's not teaching anything else except to be mindful that your mind is united in its body. <clears throat> he trains himself. I will breathe out sensitive to the entire body. He trains himself. I will breathe in. I will breathe out sensitive to the entire body. He trains himself. I will breathe in calming bodily fabrications. Just like there's an awareness of the body. There's an awareness now of breathing in. And fabrications are falling away. What are fabrications? They're distractions. They're, they're being distracted towards our feelings or our thoughts or a thought attached to a feeling, an emotion, and trying to resolve these things in, dhamma, in jhana practice. No, we just come back to our breath. And as we do that, our bodily fabrications calm. They train themselves. I breathe out, calming bodily fabrications. There's nothing else to do. There's no analysis. There's no blame. There's no guilt. There's only gentleness. I breathe in, calming bodily fabrications. I breathe out, calming bodily fabrications. It's a consequence of, of right meditation. They train themselves. I will breathe in, sensitive to rapture. We're working on changing that word to something more appropriate or more modern. I'll keep you informed. They train themselves, I will breathe in, sensitive to pleasure. They train themselves, I will breathe out, sensitive to pleasure. Again, we're not grasping after something that's pleasant. Excuse me. We're simply recognizing the pure pleasure of deepening concentration. There's no grasping after. He trains himself, I will breathe in. I'm going to read it again. He trains himself, I will breathe in and breathe out, sensitive to pleasure. Notice that this is a pleasurable experience. It's a pleasant abiding. And in order to have that pleasant abiding, we have to actually notice it. We have to have a calm enough mind to recognize, yes, this is peaceful. And you're doing it. You're generating a calm and peaceful mind. Be sensitive to that occurrence. Because that informs you of your right practice. And it becomes a self-invigorating practice at that point, doesn't it? Because you know you are developing, you're, you're recognizing the benefits of your own efforts. Again, the Buddha teaches this over and over again. This is another example of recognizing the benefits of Dhamma practice. They train themselves, I, I will breathe in, sensitive to mental fabrication. It's okay to have a fabrication and to be aware of it. In fact, that's part of practice. It's, you could say it's the, one of the most necessary. I was going to say it's, a, it's the most necessary, but being mindful of the breath is. But being mindful that a fabrication has arisen is shana practice. And what do we do? There's a mental fabrication. Uh-oh. I breathe out, calming mental fabrications. He trains and they train themselves. I will breathe in, calming mental fabrications. I breathe out, calming mental fabrications. 
There's nothing else to do with a mental fabrication except breathe. In jhana practice, when a fabrication arises, a, dis a distraction, take a breath. Breathe in and be mindful of as you breathe in, you're calming bodily fabrications. As you breathe out, you're calming bodily fabrications. And every one of you <clears throat> has felt that. It might even seem in, um, almost inconsequential. But this is the essence of Dhamma practice. It, it's getting to these subtle levels of recognizing this. This sutta is an example of appropriate Dhamma practice. This is how we do it. And these are the results that we should look for. John, can I ask a question? Yes, David, please. When you say the breathing calms the calms, or it does the calming allow you to notice the fabrication passing? <laughs> Thank you, David. Yes, and notice the sequence. By noticing the calm there, we can notice the 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 fabrication but it first requires a, a measure of concentration and calm doesn't I mean, it passing is going to happen it's passing yeah it's a conditioned thing so it's going to pass so it's that insight to impermanence yes yeah and again the, this whole i could say this whole suit to this whole section is talking about impermanence noticing the change in yourself <clears throat> And all that you have to do, the, the, what David is pointing out, and he'll he'll probably explain it better on Tuesday than I'm going to do it now. What David is pointing out, as a consequence of right practice, beginning in right meditation, mm -hmm. jhana practice, the abandoning or the sloughing off of the clinging to ignorance just happens as a consequence of practice. There's nothing else to do. There's no, again, there's no analysis. There's no... Um, uh, there's no offering this up to the gods. There's no, there's no cleansing ritual. There's just breathing. Be mindful of the breath. As we, as we are mindful of the breath, bodily fabricate the mind calms. As we continue, fabrications calm. There's nothing else to do. And if a, if a fabrication is present, if you notice a distraction, you might notice uh, extreme rage might come up. What do you do when you notice that? When you're feeling anger, you take a breath because it's just a fabrication. We don't need to know where the anger or the, or the bliss or any other feeling that is distracting in meditation comes from because it doesn't come from anywhere except here. We are, um, we're not imprinted with thoughts or feelings and we're not, um, thoughts and feelings aren't imposed on us. We are sovereign beings. We are a self. And the whole point of the Dhamma is to recognize our own sovereignty. This is me. This is what I am. Calm, unfabricated, at peace with myself in the world. And where do I first experience it? And then where do I most profoundly experience it? By noticing it. Thank you, David. Hey, John. Um, question, or should I wait? No, please. Um, I find it very difficult to, to be like that when I'm around a bunch of people or at work with coworkers. Um, yeah. It's much easier to to know who I really am when I'm by myself. And I feel like that's why it feels so good to be by myself. So the, the Buddha, the Buddha first left the world behind before he was able to develop the Dhamma. He had to establish a, a measure of seclusion from the world in order to develop what he developed and what we're still using and teaching today so that um, that inclination towards um, seclusion is good. And, and we've talked about that, Julia. And the reason why that is so important is because while you're practicing and while you're allowing yourself to have seclusion from the world, 
you're developing the Dhamma to a point where you can take it off your cushion and into your uh, everyday moment by moment life. And you were talking, I think it was last class about how you were um, so calm with one of your patients. Julie's a nurse and she was so calm with one of your patients and they were feeling that calm from you. And that's an example of bringing your practice off your cushion and into your mundane life. But that is the most difficult place. And I would say the place to bring your practice because that's where you'll develop it. You know, we first sit on our cushions and develop this. We do a little study at home. We, you, you might listen to a few talks during the week. Please do that. But then you have to take it off your cushion out of your house, out of your seclusion and bringing it into the world if that's the life you're living. Now, it's it's much more difficult today to, to just leave the world behind as the Buddha and the early monks and nuns did because they could leave their seclusion, walk into town with a bowl, and they would often get fed. Um, in most places, if you're going to do that today, you're probably going to get arrested. Um, so doing that is much more difficult today. But you can, um, I should say, if ever, any of you ever want to do that, actually um, leave the world behind uh, permanently, we can talk about it. It's not something I talk about in class, not because it's hidden. It's just, it, it's not likely to come up, but there's ways, ways to do that. Um, but Julia, you're living um, your life in the way that you want to. Um, you're using the Dhamma to frame each moment of your life. And so those, those moments of calm with patience, or even when you're with a group of people will become deeper and deeper. And I think we will all probably talk about how difficult it is to do that, to take it off our cushion. And it's 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 um, as we're developing our practice. It's some it's it's wise to not put yourself in a lot of situations that you become overwhelmed at first. It's OK to leave um, a group that it might be just into partying or, or idle chat or gossip or whatever it might be or. You know, I'm not talking about their latest Twitter post. It's okay to recognize that's a rather mindless um, experience and to leave. The problem comes when those people are our acquaintances, our close, might be our family or close friends. And so what do we do now? We practice the Dhamma. And that, that's what those, the, the closest relationships are the most important relationships for practicing the Dhamma. But if you find yourself in a loud and noisy group and you want to leave, that's probably just a good mindful instinct. How does that, does that answer your question, Julia? Perfect. That was great. Thanks a lot. Thank you for the question. The Buddha continues. He trains himself. I will breathe in calming mental fabrications. He trains himself, they train themselves. I will breathe in sensitive to the mind, sensitive to the mind. What it almost sounds like, um, how, how can you do it? How do you, how are you sensitive to your own mind? But it is just this way through this practice. We're sensitive that I have a mind. This is the beginning of gaining control of your mind by accepting ownership of your mind. Your mind isn't out there. Your mind isn't subject to ghosts and goblins and gods and demons affecting it. The only thing that can affect the quality of your mind is yourself always well maybe not always when we don't have control of our mind then our mind is is constantly prone to react reacting to what's occurring outside of ourselves or what we perceive is ha happening outside of ourselves and so when we get in situations like julia just described and we don't have this quality of mind we're not well concentrated and well protected by the Eightfold Path, we can easily lose our mind. But now the Buddha is teaching us, be sensitive to the mind. You have one. It's yours. They train themselves. I will breathe out sensitive to having a mind. I know I have it. In my breath, I'm aware of my thinking. He trains himself. I will breathe in calming the mind. It's a process of jhana practice to calm the mind. Almost every one of you, I think, um, maybe Ram didn't say this, but maybe it did, has said in one way or another that you have this monkey mind. You have a mind that's always racing. How do you control it? This is the answer to that. 
Thank you, Rob. <laughs> well, yeah, I was thinking it to say it in that same way, but maybe it did. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I, I, I usually don't use the word monkey mind. That's what, yeah. I don't think they even make it. I mean, not everybody used it, monkey mind, but you all you all recognize that your minds were going too fast or out of control. And so that's the, the first thing the Buddha noticed that we have to address is a mind that's out of control because a mind that's out of control is prone to stress and suffering. A mind that is in control, that owns its own mind, has no stress and suffering that it imposes on itself. And it's just that simple. When we're in control of our mind, of each and every thought, which is what jhana practice is within the framework of the Eightfold Path, we actually achieve that. And so we live in the world deeply engaged moment by moment, like Julia was just describing, but able to maintain a calm and peaceful mind. And that's everything, isn't it? At least for me, it is. He trains himself. I will breathe out, calming the mind. I'm going to have to read a little bit quicker to get through this section, but I want to. Um, he trains himself, or they train themselves. I will breathe in, steadying the mind. We notice that our minds are steadying or deepening concentration. They train themselves. I will breathe out, steadying the mind. Notice that your mind is, is becoming more, uh, you're gaining more ownership of the quality of your mind. You're able to calm it, calm it and, and develop concentration right here, right now. They train themselves. I will breathe in, releasing the mind. Releasing the mind where? Releasing the minds from fabricated views, from views ignorant of four noble truths. We do it. It's done. We, we do it ourselves. It's a task that we accomplish. I breathe in, releasing my mind. I breathe out, releasing my mind, releasing all that crap that I developed over a lifetime rooted in ignorance of four noble truths. And I can do it, I can't snap my fingers. <laughs> but we do it just like that, releasing the mind. Every time we find ourselves caught up in a fabrication, breathe in, breathe out, releasing your mind, releasing your, your attachment to that fabrication. They train themselves. I breathe in, releasing the mind. I train themselves, breathing in, focusing on inconstancy, impermanence. I notice impermanence because of each and every thought is rooted in that same impermanence, isn't it? It just flows by. And that's our life flowing by unless we can take a breath and be present for it. And if it's just flowing by, we're moving from past to future and we're never here. Dukkha occurs. But when we are here in control of this moment, in control of our minds, there is no stress. There is no suffering. There's just a calm and peaceful self. He trains them, they train themselves, I breathe out, focusing on impermanence. They train themselves, I breathe in, focusing on dispassion. They train themselves, I will breathe out, focusing on dispassion. Notice as I'm, as I'm becoming less and less passionate in my eye making. They train themselves, I will breathe in, focusing on cessation, the ending of ignorance. Be mindful of it because it's occurring. They train themselves, I breathe out, focusing on, focusing on cessation of ignorance. They train themselves, I will breathe in, focusing on relinquishment. We do it ourselves. We relinquish our, our ignorant views. And of course, we have to, don't we? Anything that we own, we have to relinquish to get rid of it. And we own our ignorance, whether we want to or not. And you can say the first aspect of beginning right view is to own your own ignorance. That's the basic practice, isn't it? And then learning how to recognize and abandon that ignorance. That's what this sutta is about. And we recognize those, mm -hmm. that ignorance by doing just this. They train themselves, breathing out, focusing on relinquishment. Notice when you're letting go of this stuff, these views, all these things that are a burden to yourself. Then the Buddha says, this is how mindfulness of in and out breathing of jhana is developed and pursued so as to be of great benefit.
Then the Buddha says, this is relating to the four frames of reference, the four foundations of mindfulness again. Now, how is mindfulness of in and out breathing, in and out breath, appropriately developed so as to bring the four frames of reference, the four foundations of mindfulness to their culmination? On whatever occasion, no matter when you do this, that Dhamma practitioner breathing in long is mindful of breathing in long or breathing out long is mindful of breathing out long or breathing in short is mindful of breathing in short or mindful or breathing out short is mindful of breathing out short. Meaning no matter how you're breathing, just be mindful of it. And again, the reason why the Buddha was explicit is even during his times, there was these exaggerated breath practices that, that the Buddha knew led nowhere except the distraction. You could say they led to everything but here, but I, then the Buddha says, I will breathe, I will breathe out sensitive to the body and bringing mindfulness, mindfulness to the fore, to what is occurring right here and right now. They train themselves. I will breathe in and breathe out calming bodily fabrications. On this occasion, when this Dhamma practitioner remains focused on the breath in the body, in and of itself, free of distraction, ardent, alert, and mindful, while putting aside craving and distress with reference to the world. Putting aside, we do it ourselves. We put aside craving and distress in reference to the world. The Buddha's not doing it. I'm not doing it. Our other Dhamma teachers can't do it for you. And we wouldn't if we could, because then you wouldn't learn how to do it yourself. So this is the practice. We do it ourselves. We recognize it and we recognize the benefits of doing so. The Buddha then says a declarative statement. Listen to how powerful this is. 2,600 years later, I tell you, friends, the in and out breath is unsurpassed as a body among bodies. What's he saying? It's almost... Uh, it's almost ridiculously obtuse until you understand the Dhamma. A body among bodies. He's saying, you have a self. You're a body among bodies. You're, another, way, another way that the Buddha says this in other sutras is you're a world among worlds. You're a sovereign. Understand what that means. I tell you, friends, in and out breath is unsurpassed as a body among bodies. On the occasion that one... I can't tell if I can read better with my glasses on or off. But I <laughs> excuse me, I'm sorry. On the occasion that one remains focused on the body, free of distraction, ardent, alert, and mindful, they are putting aside craving and distress with reference to the world. On any occasion, a Dhamma practitioner trains themselves. I will breathe in and breathe out, sensitive to rapture, sensitive to joyful engagement. I will breathe in and breathe out, sensitive to pleasure, no longer grasp, grasping after pleasure, sensitive to it. A human being should and must experience pleasure, but it must be pleasure that's not rooted in greed or aversion or deluded thinking. It's pleasure born of understanding, and it's pleasure that is applicable in each and every moment, no matter what's occurring, because we have control of our mind. And in that way, we cease coloring our minds through ignorance, and we simply see what's occurring, pure, bright awareness. I will breathe in and breathe out, sensitive to mental fabrications. On this occasion, this Dhamma practitioner remains focused on feelings, free of distraction. They're just here. I notice it. Ardent, alert, and mindful while putting aside craving and distress with reference to the world and with reference to feelings. My feelings are just feelings. I tell you, friends, that mindfulness of in and out breathing can be seen as the single, as a single feeling among feelings. A single feeling among feelings. What is the Buddha talking about? That that we should never have any other feelings? <clears throat> no, but we should recognize this one feeling among feelings. And where does he see it? Where does the Buddha teach us to notice this? After calming the mind, noticing calm, noticing the ending of fabrications, being sensitive to pleasure now, and then being sensitive to this single feeling. This single feeling of the breath, uniting its mind, my mind and my body, 
What is that feel like? The single feeling of concentration and pleasure and calm and release, the single feeling. The Buddha describes it in one word, calm. And what else could it be when it's rooted in, in wisdom, true understanding of what it means to be a sovereign human being, a self, a body among body, a world among worlds, a mind among minds, now united in its body, able to walk gently and gracefully through the world. And the only difference between then and now is control of our minds through jhana practice. This single feeling among feelings, which is, this is why this Dharma practitioner on this occasion remains focused on feelings free of distraction. Focused simply means that I'm having a feeling. I have feelings. We're human beings. We're supposed to have feelings. We're just not to have any aversion to our feelings. Each feeling that a human being has is always appropriate to what's occurring, except that we think it's not. When we're sad, we think we're not supposed to be sad because we're trained to not be sad. When we're angry, we're, we're, we think we're not supposed to be angry because we're taught we're not supposed to be angry. If we're angry, take a breath, unite your mind and your body and find out why. That's all. If we deny the fact that we're angry, if we're not supposed to be angry, we're never going to find out why, will we? Because if we always have aversion to our own feelings, We'll never own our own feelings. My feelings are my feelings, the crappy ones and the wonderful ones. And if I only focus on one type of feeling, what are we trying to do? We're trying to establish a permanent feeling when feelings arise and pass away. In fact, you can say the beauty of life, the magnificence of life is in feeling. And if we deny any of our feelings, we're denying our own life. And isn't it crazy? We're taught to do that somehow, that only some feelings are appropriate. And only some thoughts about those feelings are appropriate. And look at where the world is going today. The world is developing in such a way that, we're, that it's taking our feelings away and saying that we should have no feelings at all. And we should only have one way of thinking. Again, this is, this is called a, a devolution of society. It, it's not something that is um, emergent, meaning it's emergency. It's just what the Buddha recognized 2,600 years ago. The world is a flame, a flame with what? A flame with the fires of passion. And it manifests just like what's occurring out there. There's no surprise, is there? What, what we're looking at today is, is the, a, an exact replica, exactly, there's nothing different, nothing, except the characters, the actors, between what happened in the 60s and the 70s. There exactly is what's occurring today. And that, that's not a right or wrong statement. It's, it's only a statement on recognizing that our thinking has not changed at all in 2,600 years ago. And the resolution still works. It doesn't matter what's going on in the world as far as our Dhamma practice is concerned, but we're going to be much better able to walk through the world in grace and calm if we can understand what's occurring. Okay, let me try to finish this. Jen, you got to go? No, no, oh, no, okay. I'm sorry. Oh, that's okay. I, I just, I, I wanted to just let you go if you had to go. No. It's like, no. <laughs> okay. Whenever, whenever a Dhamma practitioner trains themselves, I will breathe in and breathe out sensitive to the mind, they remain focused on the mind, free of distraction. Instead of running away from your mind, insisting that you don't have certain thoughts, own your mind through this practice and then free yourself of those thoughts. How else could we do it? And we can do it directly. All the things that used to drive us nuts are in here and we can get rid of the nuts one at a time. <laughs> All we have to do is be focused on the nuts, ardent, aware, and mindful, while putting aside craving and distress with reference to the world. Put it aside. If it's present, 
If stress, if distress is within you, put it aside. How? This is direct instruction on how to do it. Calm the mind, calm fabrications, calm feelings. Own it all because it's yours. And when you own it, you can do just this. Whenever a Dharma practitioner trains, himself, trains themselves, I will breathe in and breathe out, satisfying the mind. That simple acknowledgement of our own breath, which is the acknowledgement of our entire life, by the way, that satisfies the mind. Why? Because all that a mind wants is to be united in its body and to know it. That's what we develop. That's knowing our own humanity. That's becoming sovereign. I will breathe in and breathe out, satisfying the mind. I breathe in and breathe out, steadying the mind. I breathe in and breathe out, releasing the mind. Then he says, these Dharma practitioners remain focused on the mind, concentrated, free of distraction, ardent, alert, aware, ardent, aware, and mindful while putting aside craving and distress with reference to the world. That's Dhamma practice. We remain focused on the mind free of distraction. That quality of mind is what we want to be mindful of. And if it's not there, find out why. Take a breath. When this occurs, this Dhamma practitioner remains mindful of the in-breath and the out-breath free of distraction. We walk through life just breathing. Ardent, alert, and mindful while putting aside craving and distress with reference to the world. Now listen to these words. The Buddha says, I do not say that there is the development of mindfulness of breathing for one who is forgetful of these instructions or who is not fully aware of these instructions. But you just have to follow it. Whenever a Dhamma practitioner trains himself, I will breathe in and breathe out, breathe out sensitive to impermanence. I will breathe in and breathe out sensitive to dispassion. I will breathe in and breathe out sensitive to cessation. It's all coming to an end, all those fabrications. I will breathe in and breathe out sensitive to relinquishment. I know that I'm doing it. On this occasion, this one remains sensitive to all mental qualities, free of distraction, ardent, alert, and mindful while putting aside craving and distress with reference to the world, sensitive to all mental qualities. What does that mean? That means that's radical acceptance of me, sensitive to all of my mental qualities. And if I really want to develop as a fully mature, fully awakened human being, I have to be sensitive to all these mental qualities, don't I? Or I'm denying myself. But now I can be sensitive to any mental quality that I have. I don't have to run away from them anymore. The things that the, the qualities of mine that were conditioned towards behavior that was outside of right speech, right action, right livelihood, I can now recognize it and immediately abandon it. And I don't have to get into um, any kind of fabricated morality about my speech or my actions or the way I earn a living because that is pure. And that is what frames my behavior. And now I know I'm good to go. I can walk gently and gracefully through the world because I've integrated the Eightfold Path. And now I know I can do no harm to myself or others. Those who see with wisdom and right view, right <laughs> understanding, the relinquishment, the abandoning of craving and distress are those who have established right mindfulness with equanimity. When this occurs, this person remains mindful of all mental qualities, free of distress, free of distraction, ardent, alert, and mindful while putting aside craving and distress with reference to the world. This is how mindfulness of the breath of in and out breathing is appropriately developed so as to bring the four frames of reference, the four foundations of mindfulness to their culmination. Let's read it once more. This is how, doing this, what we just discussed here, this is how mindfulness of, in and, of the in-breath and the out-breath is appropriately developed so as to bring the four foundations of mindfulness to their culmination. And what is their 
culmination, just what we talked about, a common peaceful mind, moment by moment. And when it's not, we know what to do. And we don't run away from any of our feelings and we don't analyze it. We don't blame ourselves or anyone. Whatever we feel, whenever we feel it, if, we, if it distracted us, it's just a feeling among, feel, among feelings. Among all the feelings that we have in our lives, those feelings that we have so conditioned to run away from that we spend each and every moment of our lives running away from are just the 1%. And when we start realizing it, when we start allowing ourselves to have all the feelings among all the feelings and realize it's just one feeling, now we're a human being. Go on, on first. Uh, I couldn't, I, I, David, David, I want to go to David first, but I'm not. Uh, I hey, have, Kevin, is Kevin? I do have yes, to go Dr. Right yeah, I do uh, okay. right now. And um, thank you. This was so helpful, like right where I am right now. And the sutta itself is just so fundamental. So it's putting me back in a place where you know, I need to be right now. So thank you very much. <laughs> thank you, Kevin, for joining us. Right. Take care, everyone. Great to see we'll you. See you again soon. Say hi to everyone, please. Well, thanks. Bye-bye. Kevin, number two. But number one in my eyes. How are you, Kevin? Hey, John. Thanks for the teaching today. Really, uh, I'll echo what Kevin said. Very uh, timely and uh, really gets to the heart of the matter, as you like to say. So thank you. Yeah. Thanks for joining us. Mary, how are you? Hi, very good, John. Good morning, everyone. Um, this is... I don't know if this is the particular Suda that really connected with me um, from the beginning, but um, it certainly, you know, like when you, when you start learning all of this, um, sometimes in the beginning, it can feel like a technique or a tool or something like that. But it really is about the breathing, that the equanimity, you know, if you imagine that we're, we're a top or something, you know, something uh, that uh, needs to stay in balance um, when we can recognize that we're feeling fearful or worrisome or all sorts of emotions, then we're either in the future or the past, that's going to topple, you know, you're not going to stay in balance. Um, and the fact that we can power this ourselves is really the beauty of the entire practice that yeah. recognizing when we're out of balance getting back into balance understanding i think a, a another point i think is important is when you find yourself in what i would call justification because sometimes you know you feel like you're right on the money in the emotion you're feeling and you feel like it's appropriate for the moment regardless of what harm it's causing to yourself or others. I mean, that can be in so many situations, defending yeah. yourself or um, identifying a wrong in someone else or whatever. And, and you can truly feel like you're having an appropriate emotion for that, that experience, but it's pulling you out of the balance of being present. And you know, it's the opposite of equanimity um, etc. So this is just a really like basic, basic understanding this is basic to is, I guess I say this all the time, foundational to everything else. Yeah. So thank you for the teaching. Thank you, Mary. Can I, I'm going to ask you, like, I gave myself permission to ask you a question if, and it might be impossible to answer, but do you, um, do you remember when you what it was like to recognizing that practice was bringing you benefit? Or was it just so gradual that you didn't notice it? No, no, I think it was really quite immediate that I heard some things, like I described it to my sisters as, I had like a little spot here that was just slightly open that all of this stuff could come in and yeah. it, it organized itself. Like I never had the conflict with the faith that I was brought up with. I never had that experience with the Dhamma. It fit right in nicely because 
It's complementary and supplementary, even though it's a faith I don't practice anymore. But I think that it's uh, a faith uh, or a foundation, I guess, that my I was raised with that created an open window for all of this to enter and make sense to me and make sense to my life. And so it was pretty immediate, the understanding, and I almost want to feel like it might have been this sutta, but then it was gradual after that because I feel like in my practice, you can get to a certain point and be like, okay, this is working really well for my life. I'm a better person. I'm this and that. But you're not, you got to push yourself further to truly adapt to it. So it's, you know, it's a journey, as they say. But so I guess both. It was quite immediate in an understanding and a knowing, and then it built from there. Yeah. And that, that early recognition of benefits was important to you to, to, then your practice did become self-invigorating. Uh, absolutely. I probably, you know, couldn't have stayed with it if uh, it would have probably felt too new agey or something to me if, if, yeah. uh, if I hadn't had an experience where it really just made so much sense. Like, I think what you bring to the, the translation is the practicality that we can go out and use this in our life right away. That it's just so practical. And the fact that it's self self-done and empowering um puts all the accountability right here where it needs to be yeah yeah thank you mary i mean that was what it what did it for me too when i finally realized that this was something i could do and Mm -hmm. then i did it (laughs) thanks mary thank you good morning julia thank you john i don't have much to say right now um but this was great and very useful i'm glad you joined us julia dhamma teacher brian or almost dhamma teacher but you're a dhamma teacher you're teaching now so candidate how about candidate now you're a candidate doesn't sound right (laughs) um (laughs) (laughs) almost almost Um, dhamma teacher brian um, I'm, I'm thankful that you went through the four foundations of mindfulness this morning, since that's coming up at the retreat. So I appreciate that on one level. Um, as you were, as we were going through the, the calming of the mind, the steadying of the mind, the releasing of the mind, um, I've, I've realized in meditation that I'll, I'll get to a point where the, the fabrications just kind of drop away and it gets really quiet. And then it's like, I'm sitting there looking at myself. Yeah. I don't, I don't know what to do at that point. Right. And it's just, it's a weird, like, is this it? And it just, <laughs> I, th- I think it's it. Right. I think that's it. And it's, it's this, there's this subtle craving there for something more yeah. um, that needs to get, released before you can then start focusing on the impermanence and the the marks of existence yeah Um, so this is very helpful to to see this structure laid out again um to continue my practice so thank you yeah thank you brian it it's uh it, it when you when you hear it a few times and you put it to practice it just makes sense, doesn't it? And I mean, yeah. at first, these things, the concepts are even so foreign to a conditioned mind, a mind rooted in ignorance. Um, but like Mary said, uh, there's just that little opening is all that we need. That, and I, again, the Buddha called that the, just a speck of dust in their eyes. And it does seem to me that there's people that, that have that, you know, that little that little opening is there for some reason, um, and they're they're able to develop this the way we do. Um, but it's it, it's amazingly true. It's amazing to me how true the Buddha taught that it is for just a speck of dust in their eyes, because we have so many people come through here that um, seem to understand what we're doing. But to keep that practice going, you know, day after day is is uh, is difficult, but it brings such great benefits, doesn't it? Okay, wrong. Were you going to say something, Brian, before yeah, we go to Ron? Just, just one more anecdote. You know, we were talking at the beginning of class about going out in, into our field and, and our, our our life, right? That I have found that helpful now to show just how far I've come. 
because it's it's such a juxtaposition to my life at home that's very quiet and secluded. And when I go out in the world, it just brings into dire relief how much I've changed and how much this practice has has shifted my mindset. So I think it's healthy to go out in the world and recognize. Absolutely, you know, yeah. How far you've come. That's kind of the point of this sutta too, is recognize the benefits of it and that you did it. You, know, you that, that's you hear me say it often, but you know that, that the the Dhamma requires us to own our practice if we're going to develop it. We all do it. Dhamma teacher on. Yes, it does. Um, yeah, bringing bringing the Dhamma into the world is um, and that there's there's a test. Right? That, that's where it shows you where 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 your practice really is at. Yeah. You can do a lot on your cushion, but if it's, you know, I remember coming out of, out of uh, class here and, you know, walking into my, in my house and, and just start yelling at people for, you know, but stuff that's that why I, none of them come to, to meditation class, do they? Yeah. <laughs> uh, so it, and at that point, you know, the, the, the Dharma wasn't really working for me. I, I was doing it less and less, but uh, it, it was always uh, you know, get a little snide remarks of, uh, oh, so how was your meditation today? You didn't like that, did you? <laughs> but it kept, it was just the needle you needed. Though, oh, yeah, it? yeah, because it, yeah, I recognized, you know, no, I wasn't, this, this is not, you know, this is not how, um, this is not how a calm person, you know, acts. This, mm -hmm. this, is, this is not it. Um, yeah, and that and, showed and, you that something and knowing was full well that I was looking for. Yeah, uh, and I was trying to get there, but uh, it's it's in the world. It's at the kitchen table that that things um, become clear as to where, where your practice is. Yeah, where where the, the the seven factors of enlightenment, where where you are in that in that section of seven seven factors. Yeah, it's. Um, but you know, it still starts here, yeah. and and as far as recognizing, you know, where that is working for you, yeah, that that's it, it is an odd mixture of 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 uh, instant and and gradual. Yeah. Um, at some point, I I, rec I realized that you know this this is where I should be. This is where where I am. This is where. This teaching here is is what I'm looking for, uh, and that happens at the same time as recognizing the benefits for it, and sometimes before that. It's hard to tell. Yeah, you, you're. I think you're almost just to use Mary's metaphor. It's almost like you had that same little opening, but it didn't open as quickly mm -hmm. as you. Yeah. But you stayed with it again. I think Ram is such a good example of right effort. Because you you knew there was something here for you, you didn't, it took you a while to find it. Yeah, when it's also you know fifty years of frustration of, of looking for something right. and not finding. Yeah. So that when when something is offered that has that potential, um, you, you tend to recognize it. It's yeah. not like all the other ones. Yeah, that was the same for me. And, and all the things around you, even even all the things around you that that. Are being offered to you, and you have to keep saying, "No, this isn't. This is not it. I've tried that before, and then finally, you know, offered me this, and yeah, I realized I need to. I have to try this because this, this is, this is solid." Yeah, the same thing for me. I finally found something that worked. That was, you know, that was all that all that I needed. I got. I didn't get into an argument with someone. Someone questioned my authority. Uh, I maybe I'll send it to you teachers, but they were they questioned my authority to do what I'm doing, I, mm -hmm. and I don't. I mean, it, it sounded arrogant. I, I just said, Siddhartha didn't ask anybody's permission either, mm -hmm. and he said, well, "Are you saying you're the Buddha?" And no, I said, "I'm just John Haspel." And this is, you know, yeah. they couldn't get over the fact. And he said, "Well, who was your teacher?" And I said, "Siddhartha." Uh -huh. No, I was. <laughs> they just couldn't get past the fact that I don't have a lineage or a, or a, a guru or anything. And it's just. Right. It's just the suttas. 
And to me, that's enough. <laughs> right, Dama Teacher yeah, Jen? Enough for me, too. <laughs> um, I, think I'm, I think I'm the big noble today. Thank you for being here. Thank you for the teaching. You're welcome. Hello, okay. Dama Teacher David. Hello, John. This uh, sutta was probably the most important one for me. Uh, and the word that always comes up is, uh, and you said it today, and I noticed it today, is notice. Yeah. It, it, it the three defilements, and we, we can all recognize greed and aversion, and the one that's the hard one is deluded thinking. Yeah. And his practices, so you notice that you're aware. Yeah. And uh, it's such a simple thing. Notice, just as it you, is. you're out in the world. Note, notice what those feelings are, and take notice of when you're outside of the hardwood. Yeah. That's that's a practice that is what the whole point of being on your cushion is, is to be able to take it a step out this door yeah. and notice and not, not beat yourself up about <clears throat> being outside the hardwood, but to notice why you're in that spot right there. Yeah. So yeah thank you David. again it's just such a, a perfect explanation of what we're doing uh for years i i was a you know a meditator and i thought that you know that somehow these uh, the, the sitting and getting more frustrated was somehow that alone was going to change my mind and of course i had thoughts of being you know uh, generate feelings of love and compassion for all people or visualize stuff. And, you know, I did all that and I was still like Ram said, just still an angry person, frustrated. And uh, I, I was very disappointed in myself. Um, and I didn't know why until I found out there's nothing to be disappointed about. I am what I am. I love Popeye. Popeye saying, uh, David's going to conclude this um, section of our John instruction study on Tuesday. Um, so it's going to be great, uh, as David always is. Uh, but uh, and then we'll conclude our John structured study. Um, but I, the our spring retreat is going to be based on the Anapanasate Sutta. So our fall and our spring retreat, be, uh, they'll have a nice uh, connected theme to them. What's that? The Satipatthana is going to be the fall, and Anapanasati Sutta is going to be the spring. What did I say? No, exactly that. Oh, good. Well, I got to. Sometimes I'm not sure. Nice. <laughs> What's that? You mixed up retreats. Yeah, as long as you get there, you can mix them up as much as you want. All right, we'll uh, we'll finish as we always do. See you, Ram. Bye, Ram. <clears throat> we'll finish with Meta as we always do. So again, just find your meditation posture. Be mindful of your in-breath and your out-breath and let that mindfulness of your breath unite your mind and your body. And these are the Buddha's words on metta from the Karaniya Metta Sutta. This is what should be done by one who is skilled in goodness and who knows the path of peace. Let them be able and upright, straightforward and gentle in speech, humble and not conceited, contented and easily satisfied unburdened with duties and frugal in their ways, peaceful and calm and wise and skillful, not proud or demanding in nature. Let them not do the slightest thing that the wise would later reprove. May all beings be at ease. Whatever living beings there may be, whether they are weak or strong, omitting none, the great or the mighty, medium, short or small, the seen and the unseen, those living near and far away, those born and to be born, may all beings be at ease. Let none deceive another, 
or despise any being in any state. Let none through anger or ill will which harm upon another. Even as a mother protects with her life, her child, her only child. So with a boundless heart should one cherish all living beings. Radiating kindness over the entire world, spreading upwards to the skies and downwards to the depths, outwards and unbounded, freed from hatred and ill will. Whether standing or walking, seated or lying down, free from drowsiness, one should sustain this recollection. This is said to be the sublime abiding. By not holding to fixed views, the pure-hearted one, having clarity of vision and being freed from all sense desires, is not born again into this world. Thank you all for a wonderful class today. Peace. It's interesting that the only ones that are left here are teachers. <laughs> Thank you all for joining. Bye. Well, Brian, can you email me your uh, mailing address? I have something to send you. Sure. I will have something to send you after. Thank you for listening. I rely on donations to support the continued restoration, preservation, and presentation of the Buddha's Dhamma. If you find benefit here, please consider a donation at becoming-buddha.com. Thank you. Peace.